0: two reactions I had to that. Isn't a part of you going to say, but just tell her you're Spider-Man, and then everything's going to be okay? <laughs> and how many of you have ever had this happen that I know Sherry's had the thought, you're thinking about how you can turn this into a sermon illustration, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, was just, wow, what a really accurate way of showing how... Um, One of our authors that we've been reading, is they call it a suicide. You make assumptions. And um, it really is hard to connect because of that. And we're aware that this subject matter is a cause of great joy, but also a cause of great pain, and we're overdue for a series like this. Before we get into it, uh, I want to say this. Today, we also have our five teams with one dream out in the atrium. So if you say, I'm ready to start the process of living what we call the 5S journey or the up in and out life, you know, up connecting with God, in connecting and finding my tribe and out connecting, serving the world, then there are five teams out there today that would be a place where you could start, player's box, pastoral care, uh, reverie, the campus gatherings, which today includes men's and women's ministries spot out there, and then City Lights and their permanent location. Love for you to go to talk t- and talk to some people about that, and uh, we want you to be a part of that. We also want you to know that our mission has been rebuilt in the last two years. You know, the one thing that... that. Um, COVID afforded Southbrook has also been one of our big struggles. And that is, we had been a church in decline for a long time. It was, it was happening in the whole bell curve of organizations. And so we knew for a long time we had to restart. And what COVID did was force us to do that. And so one of the ways we're doing that is through the Players Box uh, project of turning this campus into a place that six days a week is a place that intersects students and parents in their pressure, and we would love for you to be a part of that project. We are about $3.4 million of our five, uh, $4 million goal to make that happen this year, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. Make sure you go to the Players Box booth for that if you have questions about that. Uh, one of the most famous stress tests, stress evaluators ever done is the Holmes-Ray Stress Test of the top 10 most stressful life events, and four of the 10 are marriage-related. Isn't that amazing? Five, if you include imprisonment. <laughs> yeah, so right there, and you see in probably what is the most famous stress evaluator ever given, at least in American culture, you see the potential for there to be stressors in your life if you are even thinking of marriage. And so today, we're starting a four-week series that is designed to help us understand the information we need to lead to the transformation we all desire. That's what this series is about. Two things, information and transformation. Now, a couple things for you to talk about as a couple this week. One is this, information does not mean transformation. So throughout this series, as you learn some things about dynamics and about yourself, that does not mean that you'll change. Does not mean you're changed. The longer you're in church and the more you know about the Bible, the more you're susceptible to the idea that if I just know more about the Bible, it will change me. Some of the worst people you will meet in your life know the Bible inside and out. I'm, I'm telling you. And it's why the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian people who had such a treasuring of knowledge. He said, knowledge puffs up. In and of itself, knowledge doesn't help at all. Love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. And so information does not lead necessarily to transformation, but it can. It can. And I would even propose that it's an essential ingredient of transformation. It's why God told his people through Hosea the prophet, my people perish for lack of knowledge. How many of us grew up in family systems where we just didn't know stuff? We just didn't know stuff. And ignorance was not bliss. Because we didn't know how dynamics of human relationship work and how we are wired, et cetera. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance can lead you down a a pathway of self-destruction. Information is absolutely critical. And so this series has as its components to the Enneagram and the gospel. The Enneagram is our tool for information. This is really important to understand this. The, the purpose of the Enneagram is to awaken self awareness. That's what it's supposed to do. And that's why we've chosen it. We could have great tools like Myers Briggs and Strengths Finders and DISC. I mean, you've all used those. We have those. But you know why, a number of years ago, we said this is going to be our tool for self awareness? Is because the Enneagram isn't a strength finder, it's a sin finder. It is not dealing with necessarily the components of your personality as it is your motives. Why do you do what you do? Why do you want what you want? When you can understand that, you have begun the path to healing. And so the Enneagram, it simply is, you know, the, is information. The gospel of Christ is transformation. As we delve into this where when you begin to own that in Christ Romans chapter 8 that you are made righteous the truest thing about you is not your shame the truest thing about you is not what you've done the truest thing about you in Christ is you are made righteous that's if we could peel back all of your layers that's what we would find your shame is temporary The the adaptive mechanisms you've used to survive, which are your types, those are temporary. What's true of you is the love of Christ that's in you. That's true. When you understand that you are adopted, Romans chapter 8, you are a child of God who is beloved as you are today. You were an orphan on the street of sin and God said, I want her, I'll pay for her adoption price and he did in Christ. And number three, when you understand, you begin to believe this, and you activate it in your life, that in Christ, I am a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Hebrews 10.14, I'm a new creation. I have the chance to now live and grow into being the second Adam, the second Eve, the new humanity. And when by faith you start activating that, You then have the potential with the information that in this case the Enneagram provides and the transformation the gospel provides. It is a powerful combination. Now the Enneagram started in about the 4th century by some desert fathers of our faith. And it simply is a combination of Latin words, "na," which means nine and gram which means something that is written or drawn and so i'm going to give you today how you can connect with that as a couple as a person but i want to give a a very important qualifier if you misuse the enneagram it'll be in one of two areas the misuse of the enneagram especially as i'll apply it now to marriage is this is it can be used as a shield or a sword and a shield is you're defending your behavior by saying, well, sounds, I'm sorry, but I'm a three. That's what it said. I'm a three. I'm just acting like a three. And then you, so you use it to justify behavior, which after today, you'll realize you can't do that. And the other way to use it is as a sword. You are acting like such a three. And we start, we start attacking each other through these types. Be careful. As we'll see, it is information, and all information can be used to wound and to hurt and to justify. Your type in and of itself, as Richard Rohr says so well, is not evil. But if you live in just your type, it will allow you to do evil and not see it as evil because it's you. Well, that's why you're here, is so we can explain We're overdue to teach on how this impacts especially married couples. Let me do a quick introduction today. So if you've never heard of the Enneagram, this is going to help you. If you've heard of it, this is going to be a nice quick review. I'm just going to run through the nine types, give you a couple of examples from literature and from movies that are well known on these types as they've been embodied in culture. The first one is the perfectionist. This is the one. Ones have a very high standard for themselves and other people. They are a black and white world type person. They have a very clear definition of right and wrong. Healthy ones are conscientious. They're discerning. They strive to make things better in appropriate ways. Unhealthy ones are very likely to be critical, to be resentful, inflexible, and ones tend in an unhealthy way to repress their anger until one day everybody goes, whoa. Ones are not as nice as they look. They're just not. Ones, when unhealthy, seek to gain love by doing things perfectly. If I can just do things perfectly, I'll be worthy of love And this is a powerful motivator to uh, excel, but it is a destructor in relationship. Mary Poppins was a one. Um, Inspector Javert in Les Miserables, played by Jeffrey Rush in the movie, was a one. Hermione Granger. Anybody ever read or watch the Harry Potter movies? Hermione one, Hermione is a one who actually goes from being a very unhealthy one, judgmental, to being a much more healthy leverager of her oneness throughout the, the uh, series. Type two is the helper. And twos are very caring and helpful uh, they are they lean toward gaining love by by being indispensable. I'm the only one who's keeping this family together. If I was taken out of the equation, this family would fall apart. Unhealthy twos repress their own needs to tend to the needs of other people. when they're at their best. twos delight in appropriately caring for others with with appropriate boundaries of where other people end or they end and other people begin. And loving people unconditionally, but in an unhealthy way, they become very, very enmeshed. Twos are represented in literature in Snow White. In The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee is a classic too. It is embodied in the scene, I think in the, the second or third movie of The Lord of the Rings series, when Sam goes, I will, I will carry your sword, Frodo. That's the classic language of the two. The helper is I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Without me, you won't be able to make it to the Mount Doom and make the ring perish, so that good wins over evil, and and in a healthy way, twos are indispensable. In an unhealthy way, they can be really subtly self-destructive and destructive of relationships. Um, actually, two behavior in the movies is actually seen in Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. How many of you have ever seen Gone with the Wind when she demands to be loved? Like she deserves to be loved. This is the unhealthy too, is I deserve it because of everything I've done. There's conditions to their helping. Now, the third type is the achiever. And these are the people who are... They have got through life by being ambitious, achievement-oriented. They put their energy into getting things done. Threes have done pretty well during the pandemic because, boy, we got to recreate this thing. Threes accomplish, they reach goals, and they actualize results. The three is a unique type because it is the only type that has positive characteristics. There are no negative characteristics to the three. No, you know that's not true. Threes are competitive and image conscious. When they are unhealthy, they are driven by a strong need to be recognized and honored, and they will take these qualities to an extreme. Uh, Healthy threes can can achieve and strive to do well in performance, not tied to their self-worth. But unhealthy threes will only feel love when they're being successful to only feel love when being successful. I'm going to explain this in a little bit. But a compulsive need to succeed for many of you is, is really your threeness is the way you survived. And now it's, it's honored you because that's how you had the car and that's why you have the degrees and that's why you have the house. And that's why you, you don't work in, in marriage. And remember, that's temporary. The love of Christ is what's permanent in you. But this threeness is amazing for its destructiveness. Tony Stark in the Marvel Universe. Iron Man is a classic three. Jay Gatsby from The Great Gatsby. Gordon, uh, Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. What was the famous line of Gordon Gecko in Wall Street? Anybody remember that? Greed is good. That's a three, man. Why have a little when you can have a lot? Um, Darth Vader is a three. And I know that gives you great comfort to know that your lead pastor is really most closely associated with Darth Vader. But it's the truth. We threes can just destroy the universe if you let our threeness run amok. The four is the individualist. Ian Cron calls the four the most complicated number on the Enneagram. Fours often focus on what's missing from their lives. Their their brain tends to go on what they're not getting. They are more susceptible to FOMO than any other type, and so they're not able to be present because this is what's missing in this context. This is what's missing in this relationship. They long to be seen as special and unique. They are idealistic, empathetic. They are highly creative when they are unhealthy. They are self-pitying and despondent and cannot stop longing for what is not. And a great representative of this in film and literature is the phantom from the Phantom of the Opera. Even the half-mask of the phantom is a, is a metaphor for the foreignness of wanting to be unique wanting to, and longing for love through that. If you're a fan of Harry Potter, Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter is a classic fort. A little squirrely, right? A little squirrely. Um, Elsa from Frozen is a misunderstood, shame-driven, but capable of greatness for and uh, has to grow out of that. Number five is the investigator. And more than any other type, the five, you fives are the one who live in your own mind. In an ideal world, it is just you. Because you love living with just You. You store up knowledge so that you will be competent to face any challenge. You are a brilliant analyst. You are intellectual. You are driven to be independent and self-sufficient. When you're at your best, you're self-perceptive and actually visionary. You have solutions that you can offer the world because of your vast store of knowledge. But when you are unhealthy, you will wall yourselves off. You will isolate in an unhealthy way and you will be sunk within the swamp of your own feelings of inadequacy that you have isolated. It is a terrible thing when you see this happen to an individual who is an unhealthy five. They will appear aloof a lot of the time, uncaring. They are sometimes a loner, but they mostly live in their own minds. And this is classically represented in Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is the classic five, Severus Snape in Harry Potter, Belle from Beauty and the Beast is a five, and that's interesting, contrasted with the six of the the beast in the Beauty and the Beast, Uh, Yoda was a five, he is, Yoda is a five, he is. Uh, because he would just live on Dagobah, right? I mean, he, He's happy there. And then Luke Skywalker had to mess up his world and come and visit him. But fives love that. They live on Dagobah by themselves, making uh, an accumulation of knowledge happen in their mind. And the six is very ten- connected to this one because the six is the loyalist. And I think this is fascinating because Richard Rohr, he says up to half the population is a six. Up to half the population is a six. So it's safe to say Assume that up to half the people in this room are sixes. You want to know what you are, healthy and unhealthy? According to Roar, they are prone to view the world as a dangerously unpredictable place and focus on what could go wrong. These cautious types crave security and they are thinkers. They are planners. They think threes are crazy. At their best, sixes are responsible, loyal, trustworthy. But when they are unhealthy, they disproportionately Perceive the negatives in any situation and doubt themselves excessively. Do you think the pandemic affected the sixes among us? There are sixes right now. I would, I would bet you the majority of people watching in their pajamas right now are sixes going, I still can't believe they're actually gathering in person. <laughs> I can't believe they're doing that. That's unsafe. That's unsafe. Bilbo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings does not want to go on an adventure. He wants to drink tea and eat elevenses. That's the six. Why would we go on an adventure where orcs could kill us when we could be at home? Ron Weasley is an off the chart six. He's loyal to Harry Potter, but watch Ron in the series. Every single situation, he's focusing on what's going to go wrong. Every single situation um c3po in star wars the only robot he has been described who wrings his hands why because every situation is a bad situation waiting to happen and this is the six and this is why there's no number that has that has been rocked more by the pandemic than you sixes it has really rocked ones and sixes because for ones your ideal world was shattered and for sixes Everything has been proven true. You see, I, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like the I had put on her tombstone. I told you I was sick, right? So the sixes are going, I told you this world was an unsafe place. I told you, you wouldn't listen to me. Uh, some of the bet I would bet you about half of comedians are sixes. Because they take dangerous, funny situations and make them funny, don't they? That's what they do. Observational comedy takes these situations that are clearly... You know, rot with with danger, and they make them funny, and that's why some of you, as writer, some of the best writers are sixes. Anne Lamott. Anybody here ever read Anne Lamott? She takes these situations and she turns them into incredible insight into humanity and um, with humor. Number seven is the enthusiast or the party's waiting to happen. The sevens are gluttons for the good stuff of life, and and interesting ideas and exciting experiences. It's always funny when a seven and a six are married because the seven wants to potty, haughty, maddy and not be safe. They want to experience life to its fullest. They throw themselves into everything they do. And, and this is why they're called the enthusiast. They see, and when they're healthy, sevens seek experiences to enjoy life, but when they're unhealthy, they use social interaction to numb pain. To distract themselves from the unpleasant realities of life. And there is a great picture of this in literature. Have you ever heard of the, the guy, who's, who's the guy who didn't want to grow up? Peter Pan, Peter Pan is a classic seven. He saw the death is the ultimate adventure. Remember that line? Death is the ultimate adventure. That's a seven. I don't want to grow up. I just want to enjoy life. Sirius Black in, in Harry Potter. Ariel from The Little Mermaid. La, 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 la You know, just singing in the ocean, right? Everything's going to, to heck in a handbasket, but Ariel's singing away. That's a, that's a seven. An eight, the eight is the challenger. And these are the powerful, dominating types who when they're unhealthy, they need control. When you see an eight really behave badly is when they get the sense everything nailed down is coming loose, and if I don't take control, things are going to go really bad. When eights are healthy, they are the crusaders who lead missions and make things happen. When they're unhealthy, that leadership becomes dominant and destructive. Their motivation is to assert power over an environment, deny weakness, and and that can lead to all kinds of relationships being trampled. They are direct. They are nose-to-nose type people, and this was epitomized by Marlon Brando and the godfather Don Vito Corleone. What's the famous line from Don Vito Corleone? I'm gonna give you an offer you can't refuse, which is a direct eight. Like you don't have a choice to refuse this. Um, Magneto in the X-Men was played by Ian McClellan. Harry Potter is a dominant anger emotion of an eight. And Princess Leia is an eight who doesn't get along well with the seven Han Solo But gets along so well with her nine brother, Luke Skywalker, that she kissed before she knew it was her brother, right? But they get along so well because why? The nine is the peacemaker. Nines devote their energy to maintaining maintaining harmony internally, externally, at their best. Nines are the peacemakers, They would rather ignore conflict than actually deal with it. And they seek to gain love by blending in. Sometimes to the extent nines are known for absorbing the pain in a relationship just to keep the peace. Until one day that is too much and usually their health fails, their emotions fail or they explode. When they are healthy though, they are that person in a situation who brings calm and, and brings a sense of peace. And I love this. Nines are perched at the top of the Enneagram because they can easily see all the types. They're the one in the family conflict that's going, I can see the three's perspective and I can see the sixes perspective and I can see the, the eight's perspective because they can't. And very, very classic representation of this is Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is that he just wants to eat honey in his tree. That's what he wants to do and just have peace. Now... Here's what's very important to understand. There is a show that is, uh, is I want to qualify by saying, that it is British humor. So it gets profane, but there's a show that's been on the last couple of years called Ted Lasso. And Ted Lasso is about a, a American football coach who goes to London, to uh, England, to coach soccer. And he's hired by the owner who got the team in Uh, a divorce a nasty divorce with her husband and he loved that soccer team and she hired him because she wanted to slowly destroy the team and uh and ted lasso it 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 is as if they took that show and they said we're going to have a type for each of the nine enneagram types i want to show you something here just this picture just take ted lasso and if you watch the show you will see each one of these characters dominant in these types but look at this the Enneagram, for me, has been most beneficial because of the concept, as you get into it, called the triad. And the triad acknowledges that, I'll take myself as an example, as a three, that was my adaptive strategy. That, and I look back on my life, clearly just pouring gasoline on my ambition orientation was a way to be perceived To be worthy of love, for me, it was to save my family's name. And uh, as a matter of fact, ministry for most people is a Messiah complex trying to be fleshed out. And that it definitely was for me. I know, again, that makes you feel so good that I'm the one talking to you. Why is he talking to us? Why, Why is he talking to us? But here's the thing that was so critical. Is that if I just live there, I'm going to damage people. And I have. But the triad for the three is the six and the nine. The Enneagram gave me a very clear path of growth. That how Jesus would grow in me is as I grow to be a safer person and not so reckless. And as I would grow to be a person of peace, not the one always bringing up conflict and creating conflict actually. I' not always challenging people. If you let me, I will just challenge me and you all the time. And it's exhausting to be around someone like that. That's why Randy said that. It's exhausting to be around me. And so what happened is for the first year after I delved into this, for the first year, I was embarrassed. It was embarrassing. You mean to tell me, this is how people perceive me? It was embarrassing. I'll get into that in a moment. But it also gave me hope because I realized the reason that one time my daughter looked at me and said, Dad, your efficiency is trampling me. Your efficiency is trampling me. Because you know what? When I get in efficiency mode, that's what happens. I trample. She said that to me last fall. So I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I'm going to be, but I'm not what I was either. I still have to grow. And Sherry is a nine. She helps me with that. And if I don't grow in that, I'll trample my nine wife, who will deal with it for a long time and not tell me about it until it's too late. And I cannot emphasize enough how valuable this is as a growth pattern for me. It's given me a very specific, I know what I need to pray in, how I need to grow. And so if today this is your introduction, this is what we use with Player's Box. All students and parents go through an Enneagram testing where we get students from middle school and up started on this journey of knowing who they are. The gospel will tell you whose you are. The Enneagram will tell you who you are in in your present state. We're going to hear from Jim Zartman the next two weeks, and he's going to share from his perspective, the, from the art of growth. He has the most listened to podcast in the world regarding the Enneagram, and Jim's going to be with us with um, an interview I'm doing the next two weeks, and if you want to get started on this, I just right now, just zone out of the sermon for the next few minutes and get started on that, do it, because this level of self-awareness is going to be a beginning step in your journey. The Enneagram is valuable because it forces us to deal with sin. Your greatest problem is not COVID. It's not your government. It's not your spouse. Your greatest problem is the reason God sent a Savior for our sin. Your greatest problem is this viral entity called sin. It distorts everything good. It turns good things into bad things. It takes things that are good and we use them excessively to self-medicate. Sin is a viral reality that you are born with. You are born into this, this part of you. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate Every one of us is born with, if you let us go, we will head south really fast. It's we Our mothers tra- transferred this to us. Can you believe what they did to us? We were born with this because our mothers passed this on to us. Can you believe that? Fathers had nothing, to, that's a joke, people. That's a joke. Um, but this, this reality is why I love it. It's not a strengths finder. It's a sin finder. It's a sin finder. Now, if you just... Stay in embarrassment for a long time. That's not good. I want to show you something here from Richard Rohr, who has written a book called The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. The Enneagram can help us to purify our self-perception to become unsparingly honest toward ourselves. If you do not sense humiliation, you have not found your number. That's why we use it. Because we realize there's so many things you have used with your company. You've used Myers-Briggs, and you've used, I mean, you guys know that stuff. And it helps you understand your personality strength. That's good. What most of us don't realize we need is we need information about our souls. Why do I do what I do? Why? Why do I do things that I don't want to do? Why? That's what we need help with. And so he says this. The more humiliating it is, the more you're looking the matter right in the eye. And anyone who says, Oh, it's wonderful that I'm a three is either not a three or hasn't really understood how disastrous this pattern is. The Enneagram uncovers the games we find ourselves in. That's why some people did not come today, because they knew what was coming. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. There are people who said, I'm, I'm not coming. I'm not coming during this. I don't want to. F-. That's right. Because you know what the interface between information and transformation is? You know what it is? Repentance. That's the, that's the interface between information and transformation. And you can't have repentance. If your doctor doctors your x-rays all the time, you're never going to get better. Your x-rays will look good, but you're never going to get better. Nobody needs a physician who doctors the x-rays. We need someone who say, here's reality. And what the Enneagram does is it puts... An x-ray over our condition, not only what we do, why we do what we do. Why do we do it? And, and this, this right here, it uncovers the games that we have played that got us the degree, that got us the house and the cars, but doesn't work relating to other people. Paul said this in Romans 7, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You leave me how I am in my condition outside of Christ, whoo, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I always say that when I read that, that's that's more I do than a Las Vegas chapel on a Friday night. You know, I mean, it's like, but how many of you honestly can identify with that? How many of you honestly? Because the rest of you really need this. Because the rest of you have not yet understood that there are forces at work that were adaptive strategies you had where you do things and it not only hurts other people, you're hurting yourself. How crazy is that? I mean, it's almost, you understand why you do things that hurt other people because they've hurt you. Why do you do things that hurt yourself? It's because of this entity that only Jesus can deal with called sin. It's not just what we do. It's a viral reality in the human condition that left to itself, the worst part of you will come out. And it'll come out in such a way that you'll justify it. Based on how you're wired. Um, every one of us here today, depending upon our type, has sin patterns that we lean into naturally. And so for me, as a three, I've, I'm very aware of this. I, I, I'm like a drunk that works at a bar. I, I'm, I am because I work, I lead a church, I'm a three and threes have a tendency to, to just put on a public persona, and that's not really who they are at all, boy, shouldn't have gotten into ministry, that is for sure. Because everybody wants you to be like God. You know, I'm, you're, you're my God image, Imago Deus. And so I know that. Now, some of you have said, you've impacted my life because you're so authentic. You know what's tricky about that? Is the minute I start working to be authentic, I'm not authentic anymore! And it's just, it's a really tricky thing. But look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. Ephesians 5.14, I want you to, like, take a picture of this. This is fascinating. Anything exposed to the light becomes light itself. In other words, when we take out of the security that I am being made righteous, I've been adopted, and I'm being made new, and out of that security, we can say, hey, I know my tendency would have been, as a three, that I just want to sound spiritual to you. And I'll say things that make you spiritual people really love me, because this sounds, oh, and he talks like this, he talks like God when he talks, he sounds like the voice of God, and he says, praise Jesus, hallelujah, and God, and he just said, oh, I just love him, he's so real. And, and, and I can do that, but... But you know me as the person who throws cuss words into sermons every once in a while. And you know why? It's because I don't want to be that fake. And I'm very sensitive to it. Very sensitive that I can go there so quickly. The actual reality of bringing that into the light is the interface of it becoming a strength. Not because I work at being authentic, it's because I'm aware of my weakness. I'm aware that I can fake it. If you let me, I would be Gordon Gecko. I would be be that person who's achieving with a sheen on the outside, but dying on the inside and totally different from my public persona. And and that is a sin that I will never do away with. It'll, It'll always be there. It'll be my thorn in the flesh. You have yours. But when I bring that into light, when you bring that into the light with your spouse, with 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 your small group with the people you trust it becomes a part of your light isn't that interesting do you see why i believe that jesus is the way the truth and the life because what jesus offers is the cure for middle eastern conflict and w- midwestern marriages and everything in between because what he what he presents look at this look at this what he presents is three realities about our shadow side. Number one, if you deny or defend your shadow side, it'll be projected outside you. you other people will be aware of it and you won't. And, and one day when you're awakened to this, you'll go, oh my gosh, that's embarrassing. I, after I went through this, I did a year where I didn't do meetings because I realized after going through this how bad I am in meetings. When my threeness would come out and I get tired of people who process slowly and we got to go more, you know, da-da-da-da. Number two, Christ was never condemning of people because they were sinners. He was only condemning of people who pretended they had no sin. So, for those of us who want to say, "It's her fault," "It's his fault," you are you say, "Well, but I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm a sinner." But practically, in the relationship, you're not because you're saying. My moral position on this is true. Now, remember, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. But when you moralize your position, you end up personalizing their position and you up villainizing that person because their position is not your position. This is what's wrong with America. If you don't have my position, I'm going to villainize you because you're wrong. I'm right. And that's, there can be no relationship on that basis. Number three, number three, we cannot get rid of the shadow side. Paul said, I prayed that God would remove my thorn in the flesh, which I think for him was anger. Yeah, I, he said, but he, he didn't say that. He, he said he said this, he said, but when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That, that God said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, I'll never get rid of this. God said, I'm not going to heal that. You're going to walk with a limp. But that'll that'll be the very thing that, that weakens you into my grace. It's a paradox. We can only expose its intent in order to grow out of its destructive effects. All this to say this. If all you do is say, well, I am A, that's the box that will limit you. But if you say, by God's grace, I am made righteous in him, I am an adopted child of the Most High God with supreme value and worth as in today. I am being made new in the image of His new creation. And out of that, you say, I have the courage to step outside that self imposed box. You will see things that in 20, 30 years, you'll look back and you'll go, Oh my gosh, He who is faithful to finish the work He started in me, He is doing it. I don't understand it, but He's doing it. But, here, but listen to this as a couple, You'll look back in 20 or 30 years and go, that was worth it. That was worth it. Because in Christ, what Sherry and I have experienced, and we are so different, we have experienced because of Jesus, three plus nine equals one. And you can too. We've had unbelievable struggles. I can't believe she's still married to me. I really, really can't sometimes. But what Jesus does, and you can't do anything about the past. Like you can sit here today and go, oh my gosh, if I'd have known this. uh, No, 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 you can't do anything about that. That's shame. That shame's temporary. Let it go. The love of Christ will lead you into a future where you say, this was so worth it. This was so worth it because Jesus has done what he promised he would do. So here's what I want you to do. Some of you have never said, Jesus Christ, you are my Savior. Because no one's going to make me righteous by his own sacrifice. No one's going to pay the right to me and be an adopted child of God. I've, I've rebelled against God. I don't deserve to be that orphan picked off the street and adopted. Are you kidding me? And I don't have any hope of being made new. I've got patterns that are 30, 40, 50 years old. There's no way that this old dog's going to learn new tricks. And yet today you can say, but Jesus, I accept your promises to me. I'm going to activate those that by faith, the truest thing about me is your righteousness. The truest thing about me is your adoption of me. And the truest thing about me is I am a new creation in you. That's the truest thing. I'm going to let that come out as I grow in you. And if you have never done that, then I want you to do it today and let us know at the information counter today that you did that because we'll help you every step of the way into that 5S journey that leads you to Jesus being more the reality of your life. The way to physically do that is communion. So for all of us here today who are of Christ and we have the promises of his righteousness, his adoption, and his new creation, take communion today in a different way. Take it in a spirit of repentance that says, Jesus, today I sat here and I, and I thought, well, I hope she's listening. <laughs> Repent of that. And say, Jesus, I was listening. I needed to hear this. Because I can grite about everything that's wrong with the people around me or I can be repentant to you and trust that you'll do the work in me that you promised. And that's all I can control anyway. So I want to pray. I'm going to give you a chance to take of the symbols of his body and blood, go back to your seat, and just bring metanoia, repentance to him. No excuses, no pointing fingers, just you and Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning as we start this journey that is piercing in its truth of information but hopeful in its declaration of transformation. In Christ, we have been made righteous. In Christ, we are adopted and we can say, Abba, Father. And in Christ, we are a new creation. The old things are passing away, always become new. We are a new Adam, we are a new Eve. And Lord, I know that to be true. And I pray that everyone here today activates that reality through faith in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. See you next week, everybody, for part two.